This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The American Civil Liberties Union is challenging South Carolina's return to work order for state employees. In March, Governor Henry McMaster cited a decline in new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations and ordered state agencies to immediately expedite the return of non-essential state employees to in-person work by the beginning of this month. Joining me is Akram Pfizer, a professor of law at Lincoln Memorial University. So tell us about the ACLU's lawsuit. The ACLU lawsuit is challenging the governor of South Carolina's decision to require non-essential employees, including their plaintiff, a woman named Michal, who's basically ostensibly a representative plaintiff, to force her and other non-essential state employees to return to work in person at their offices. And their claim is the lawsuit is brought about because the governor's decision unfairly is putting workers such as the plaintiff in a dangerous situation because COVID remains a very dangerous disease uh, and it's still spreading in South Carolina. And their concern is, and the basis for their lawsuit, is that it has a disproportionate effect on women and racial minorities and the disabled in South Carolina because women, racial minorities, and the disabled typically have less access to things like care for their children, and they're plausibly being put in more dangerous positions by returning to work compared to better compensated employees or higher up employees. Do we know why the governor wants them back to work so soon? We, I don't exactly know why. It's conjectural, but what we can conjecture, the political culture in South Carolina is very conservative and consistent with that political culture and the governor's own political inclinations and the pressure he faces. I think there's a lot of push to require all employees to return to work and reopen South Carolina economy for economic and political reasons. So the ACLU claims that the executive order exceeded the governor's authority. The one constitutional aspect is what is the power of the governor of South Carolina to issue an executive order of this type? And that issue tends to be very poorly adjudicated because executive orders have a certain ambiguity to them as to what can be done via executive order and what requires legislation. However, in this case, the executive order is an amendment to the previous executive order he issued at the start of the pandemic which actually said that all non-essential workers have to work at home. So in a strange sense, the plaintiff's position is undermined by the fact that the original requirement that they work from home was also by executive order. So if the governor doesn't have power to issue this executive order, he wouldn't have the power to issue the initial executive order. Are executive orders of a governor in a state similar to executive orders of the president of the United States? They tend to be, June. Um, They tend to be the same basis. One thing that has to be said, though, is quite often executive orders are required at the state level even more so than at the federal level because quite often the state legislature is itinerant and spends a greater amount of its time out of session. So especially like, for example, during COVID, like in Tennessee where I live, the legislature was not in session and inaccessible at the time the governor issued the executive orders in question. What would the ACLU have to prove to make its case here? 
Well, in terms of discrimination, their claim is that the executive order is first beyond the governor's authority. That is, I think, a pretty high hurdle because the courts are going to be reluctant to limit gubernatorial authority to issue emergency executive orders during a time of crisis. If indeed the governor could only act based on legislation, that would make it extremely difficult for a governor to protect the state during a time of crisis because it's hard to convene the legislature. The second thing is they're claiming that assuming the executive order was legitimately issued is improperly discriminatory because it has a disproportionate negative effect on women, people of color, and the disabled who tend to have more difficulty returning to the workplace for socioeconomic and other reasons. So the argument goes, for example, with women, women disproportionately have the burden of childcare in American culture and in most cultures, and because of that unfair burden compared to men, they are the ones who are required to be at home now during COVID, especially when schools have been closed or children are learning online to avoid pandemic spread. And their argument is to therefore require women to return is a disproportionate negative effect on women's ability to participate in the workplace, and that therefore discriminates against women on the basis of their sex. That's the argument it would be. And it would be based on the 1964 Civil Rights Act or whatever South Carolina equivalents there are. The problem with that claim, though, is recognizing that a resumption to work order, a disproportionate effect on poorer people and women, the governor would be able to rebut that claim because the law says that the claim would be is rebutted by a legitimate business reason for the disproportionate effect. And here the legitimate business reason is his general desire to reopen the South Carolina workplace. If you took the ACLU's argument its logical conclusion, then requiring any woman or minority to work would be discrimination because obviously it's more difficult for women and minorities to work in normal situations because of the work-life balance difficulties that our culture imposes on women. So how could a resumption to go back to work be discriminatory? Is there any requirement of that accommodations be made? Typically, when you're disabled, an accommodation can be made. There's not an, a requirement of an accommodation, though, to my understanding, under the employment laws, when all we're asking is... Now, now notice the governor's executive order says resume to work. It doesn't preclude supervisors providing accommodations to protect their workforce. So, for example, it's very likely, let's say, for example, uh, the plaintiff, if she goes back to the College of Charleston in a non-essential capacity, they will require things like mask wearing and social distancing while she returns to the workplace. So there's no evidence here we see in the complaint or in the executive order that any resumption to work will be anything but safely effectuated, right? So, for example, I, I've returned to work, but the requirement is my students have to wear masks in the classroom, and I have to wear a mask, and we have to distance from each other. And plausibly, if those safety precautions weren't being met, there might be something that the employee could pursue further. But right now, based on the executive order and the details of the complaint, there's nothing to indicate that the resumption of work for these non-essential workers will be anything but recognizing you can't be completely safe, there's always a risk, but that they would do anything reckless in forcing the employees back to work. So this is an uphill battle for the ACLU. Is this the kind of case that won't survive a motion to dismiss? Well, I, I can't speak to, you know, whether it would survive a motion to dismiss. I don't think this is the kind of case where an injunction will be issued 
against the governor's order pending resumption of the case, you know, pending conclusion of, of the case. I think, for example, a dismissal, I think very plausibly, neither a dismissal will be granted, but neither will an injunction be issued and the ACLU, and therefore the, the employees may be required to go back to work in the interim. I understand the ACLU is looking into New York City's return to work. Would all these situations where a mayor or a governor is ordering a return to work, would the same considerations be at play? I think it is, but I think it's also determined, and how these return-to-work orders are effectuated is also determined by political culture, right? And so, for example, plausibly, a New York City mayor or a New York governor, in view of New York's political culture, is probably going to lean more on the side of safety precautions and avoiding the risk of transmission than a South Carolina or Southern governor who faces pressure based on politics to resume life as it was before COVID. The reality is both governors in all jurisdictions have a lot of discretion in how to basically either maintain a, a, a because states have broad police powers, unlike the federal government, and because based on those police powers, they're going to be given broad discretion as to the, whether they keep their states relatively closed or whether they can require reopening. And this is key because state employees, like all of us, we have a, a constitutional right to do with ourselves as we please, provide, right? But we don't have a constitutional right to our employment. And so, for example, the argument could be made that if state employees feel uncomfortable returning to work, there's no requirement that they keep those jobs. Is the same true, let's say, a, a private employer orders everyone back to work? A private yeah. employer has, has, yes, has, has very broad discretion, right? The only thing a private employer cannot do is violate the civil rights laws in, in ordering a resumption to work. Like they can't discriminate on the basis of race or sex. But under these terms, the private employers have broad discretion. And uh, in fact, private employers have ordered the resumption to work in an area where, in, in, in my field, private universities and colleges have been much more aggressive ordering a return to work for faculty and staff compared to public universities because private universities are much more dependent on tuition revenue and dormitory revenue for their viability. And, you know, in may, most colleges, private colleges in this country, if, if you allow faculty to teach via Zoom, Students will not will, will plausibly neither enroll, and they certainly will not choose to live in a dorm and order the meal plan to have a Zoom pedagogy, right? So most private colleges, for example, have been much more aggressive in ordering a resumption to the workforce. Suppose someone has an underlying medical condition. Does that qualify them for special treatment? It doesn't necessarily qualify them, but typically based on the Americans with Disabilities Act and most state equivalents, employers tend to give and are required to give an accommodation. And so the requirement of an accommodation, though, is an accommodation as opposed to necessarily an exemption that precludes them from getting the benefits of that work. So, for example, it could well be that an employer might say, well, we're going to allow an employee who's at a higher risk level to stay at home. You know, a supervisor might allow that or give them more space so that they have less risk of transmission. But that is all not addressed in the executive order. 
and very plausibly will be left to supervisors within the organizations throughout the state. And I think it's very likely most supervisors will provide some accommodation. But remember, an accommodation is not an exemption from working. It is you have to still work, but if there's a way of providing a you know a feasible accommodation, that's different. So how would you sum up the key issue here? I think the key thing, June, is what we're touching on is that this is something that's based on, and, and the entire COVID response is based on a governor's very broad powers and a state government's very broad police powers to protect the health, safety, and welfare of its citizens. And based on that very broad power and the governor of South Carolina's broad power to protect the health, safety, and welfare, executive orders were issued at the start of the pandemic requiring employers to let their employees work from home or requiring, in the case of state employees, requiring state employees to work from home. Now, recognizing that COVID hasn't been defeated and there's still a huge risk of spread and based on the plaintiff's complaint, only a relatively small percentage of South Carolina's population has been fully vaccinated, right? It still resides within the state's police powers to determine when it can order an end to the pandemic-related health, safety, and welfare measures. And that's still a broad power left with the governor. And it's especially a broad power given to the governor when it comes to dealing with state employees. And the governor, recognizing that that potential public policy negative in requiring people to return to work, the governor tends to have that authority. However, be fair by the governor, there's nothing that hamstrings its employee supervisors in how they will resume work duties. In other words, there's nothing indicating that the governor's ex- executive order is going to require any supervisor to be reckless as, as to how we, he reintroduces workers into the workplace. That's Akram Pfizer of Lincoln Memorial University. The embattled Republican Florida Congressman Matt Gates is fighting back and vowing to overcome a Justice Department investigation into alleged sex trafficking charges. Gates showed up at a high-profile Women for America First event at former President Trump's golf course in Doral, Florida on Friday night. When you see the leaks and the lies and the falsehoods and the smears, when you see the anonymous sources and insiders forecasting my demise, know this, they aren't really coming for me. They're coming for you. I'm just in the way. It was the Trump Justice Department that started looking into Gates last summer, stemming from its investigation of Joel Greenberg, a Gates friend and county tax collector. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. So, Eric, for those who have been hiding under a rock somewhere, tell us who Matt Gates is. Uh, so Matt Gates, uh, he's a 38-year-old lawyer by trade. Uh, he is representing Florida's first congress congressional district since 2017. Um, covers a lot of the Florida panhandle, uh, including Pensacola. Um, he's very popular with conservative Republican voters there. He's been easily reelected um, in 2018 and 2020. Um, and he's also has a, a national profile um, as a very outspoken defender of former President Trump. Um, he really went to bat for him as often as possible. I got in front of the cameras, got in front of Congress, his fellow con- members of Congress, and really blasted um, all the various efforts to, uh, you know, carry out this alleged witch hunt against uh, Trump over the years. So very outspoken defender, and that really raised his national profile. 
So now this investigation started when Bill Barr was attorney general. What's the federal investigation about? So this federal investigation uh, was first reported um, you know, by the New York Times just, just recently. So it, as you said, it did start uh, last year um, under the Trump administration, um, looking into um, allegations that Gates uh, was involved in, in child sex trapping, essentially, um, with whether or not he had a sexual relationship with a, a 17-year-old girl and engaged in uh, sex trafficking by paying for her to cross state lines. Uh, you know, of course, he's denied this, um, uh, but, uh, you know, this is the ongoing investigation uh, in Washington. As you say, he denies it. He also said that it has something to do with an extortion attempt of his father. Yeah, this is it's a little unclear exactly what is, is going on here. Um, one of his first uh, defenses was to claim that uh, this was all part of an elaborate attempt to extort him. Uh, out of $25 million that a former DOJ official had, uh, you know, threatened to make public photographs um, of, of uh, Mr. Gates uh, with minors um, if they didn't pay up. Um, he said that they went to the authorities with uh, these allegations and that there was an investigation into this extortion. That's how he describes it. Um, that So he claims that this is all just an elaborate ruse to make, make him look bad. Um, and that it all started with an, an attempt to get money out of him. So now, who is Joel Greenberg? Joel Greenberg is uh, the former elected tax collector in Seminole County, Florida. Uh, he uh, was a close ally, um, friend of, of uh, Mr. Gates. You know, they attended a lot of Republican events together, things like that. And uh, he was charged last year by federal prosecutors down in Florida uh, with various crimes, uh, abuses um, uh, of his power as tax collector, uh, you know, using his uh, database there to, um, you know, harass um, and stalk people who were he opposed, uh, creating fake identifications. Pretty wide range of allegations made that eventually they included child sex trafficking, um, and a lot of the allegations against him are apparently overlapping with with uh, Mr. Gates. We heard something very ominous sounding for Matt Gates from Greenberg's lawyer. That's right. There was a hearing in this case in Florida last week. Uh, Mr. Greenberg's lawyer uh, got up in front of the court and said that he, uh, his client agreed with prosecutors that the best way to resolve the case was through a guilty plea. They did not in- indicate which of the dozens of uh, charges he would potentially be pre- pleading guilty to. Uh, but the sex trafficking charge, of course, is uh, the most serious there. Um, and they gave uh, a mid-May deadline uh, for this plea to be reached. Um, it, there wasn't much else said about a, a plea agreement or cooperation, but one can uh, surmise that uh, if there is a plea deal, that it, it probably wouldn't in, include some level of cooperation that wouldn't be very surprising. And that cooperation, you know, the only other person that's sort of been it, uh, reference in in uh, in this case is uh, Mr. Gates, so that's why it poses potentially a, a serious threat. And uh, Mr. Greenberg's lawyer said as much um, outside court that day. According to news reports, he flat out said that uh, that Mr. Gates should probably be pretty worried. And the comments of Greenberg's lawyer were surprising, considering that the deal hasn't been made yet. Yeah, normally, you know, defense lawyers like to keep their cards close to their, their vest and not uh, say 
any kind of hint about what their client might potentially be cooperating about, especially when uh, the congressman has not been, you know, charged with anything. He's not a part of this case, you know, really publicly um, in any way. So it's all, uh, uh, he really did put it out there. And you can see that pretty quickly as well, that's when Congressman uh, Gates also uh, announced the hiring of some pretty high-profile criminal defense attorney um, that uh, sort of made it clear that he was, uh, how serious he was taking this. And he, in fact, hiring one of Donald Trump's defense attorneys, Mark Mukasey, uh, to handle uh, the case for him, as well as the uh, prominent New York criminal defense attorney, Isabel Krishner. We've talked before about Mukasey. Tell us a little bit about him, because he's got a high profile. Yeah, he's, he's another big defender um, of uh, the former president, has been involved in a lot of the, the cases. Of course, Mr. Trump has faced a lot of different lawsuits uh, in his individual you know, capacity um, and uh, also investigations. And, uh, and Mukasey is representing Trump um, in the ongoing uh, criminal investigation by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. Um, as well as another investigation by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. So uh, Mr. Mukasey is deeply involved in, in Trump's legal matters now, and now he's also deeply involved with uh, protecting Matt Gates. And Gates is taking a position of adamant denial of any charges. He, um, he's denied it very, very strongly every opportunity he's gotten. He's been appearing on the cable network um, denying these allegations. And he also hired... Um, uh, a conservative uh, political consulting uh, firm to represent him in this uh, matter as well. When that actually gives us another a Trump connection, because uh, the woman who is his spokesman right now is named Erin Elmore, and she was a former contestant on uh, Trump's reality TV show, The Apprentice, and also um, his, worked uh, on his campaign. So um, you've got a couple of different Trump connections there. And they issued a statement last week, um, you know, blasting these allegations, saying they were completely unfounded, um, part of a, you know, a setup. I think they really want to try to portray what's happening to Gates right now is similar to what happened to Trump, you know, with the, the whole claims about the witch hunts and everything like that. Um, and uh, his office, his congressional office, also put out a statement um, by all the various women who work in his office saying what a great guy he is and how he's never engaged, you know, in any uh, type of behavior that would be questionable. Um, of course, the statement didn't include the names of any women, just said the women of his office. Uh, they attributed it to them. But uh, so they've been they've put, putting out a lot of statements and denying this uh, regularly. Trump hasn't been out there defending Gates the way Gates defended Trump. It, it's hard to imagine that Gates would have been able to hire a high profile uh, lawyer like Mark McCasey without Trump sort of giving the green light on that. Um, and, and Trump said in a statement that Gates, you know, never asked him for a pardon. Um, and it must be remembered that he has totally denied the accusations against him. Uh, that's what Trump said uh, last week. The House Ethics Committee has opened an investigation as well. What's their investigation into? Well, the House Ethics Committee is looking into essentially a lot of these these, these same allegations. Uh, uh, it's uh, not too surprising that they would do so, given uh, the amount of public attention that is being directed uh, uh, at the congressman. Um, you know, they, they put out a statement basically, you know, saying the committee is aware of the public allegations, and uh, they included um, the fact that there are suggestions of um, illicit drug use uh, 
the sharing of inappropriate images and videos on the House floor, possible misuse of state identification records, um, and converted campaign funds to personal use. Uh, so it's really a, a, a lot. Um, pretty much all of the allegations that we've been seeing reported variously throughout the press, they're, they're going to be looking at all of them. Is there any sense in the House doing its own investigation while a federal investigation is underway? Well, I mean, these federal investigations can take a very long time. Um, the, the committee might uh, see it as within their, their right to look at their own members' conduct, um, regardless of what's uh, going on with the federal investigation. I mean, as we saw with the impeachment of uh, former President Trump twice, uh, you know, they, there's a little bit of a difference. Uh, due process that happens in Congress there. You can have a federal investigation uh, where you are innocent until proven guilty, that sort of thing going on um, that is totally separate from what uh, the committee in Congress might think of, of, of its members. They don't necessarily need to wait for there to be charges brought or trial or anything like that before they could uh, potentially make a move of their own, although it's very early to speculate about what that might be. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.